Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we saw the Kalmar Union go from smooth sailing and sunny skies to teetering at the brink of collapse in about five minutes because the generally well-liked King Christopher died unexpectedly and without an obvious heir. That led to two pretenders, Christian of Oldenburg, the nephew of the Count of Holstein, and our old friend Karl Knudsen Bunde, fighting it out for the top job. In the end, Christian won and Karl Knudsen was forced to go into exile in the Hanseatic city of Danzig on the southern shores of the Baltic Sea. That established the House of Oldenburg on the Danish throne and, not to spoil things too much, but the current Queen of Denmark, Margaret II, is a descendant of that house. So are the kings of Norway and England, by the way. This time, we'll see King Christian enjoying a long and peaceful reign over his three Scandinavian kingdoms with no opposition or rebellions anywhere. I'm kidding, of course. If you thought that the Swedes would stop complaining and that Karl Knudsen would accept his fate and settle into a comfortable existence as an exiled ex-king overseas, you clearly haven't been paying attention. Episode 64, Fickle Fate. A fortnight or so after Karl Knudsen had fled the country, the Swedish Council of the Realm convened to deal with the fallout of the rebellion where yet another king had been ousted. In the long run, they wanted to re-establish the Kalmar Union, but that could take time, and until the issue was settled, the situation would be far from stable. They were worried that Karl Knudsen might exploit the instability and come back in a surprise attack from Danzig. To make sure there wouldn't be any power vacuum in Sweden, the council elected not one, but two new stewards of the realm, the archbishop and another prominent nobleman called Erik Axelsson of the Tott family, one of these rich and powerful cross-border families. When Christian heard about what had happened in Sweden, he didn't want to waste any time either. He sent a message to the Swedish council that he'd be on his way soon and started to gather troops. In early June, he arrived in Sweden and immediately let it be known to both the council and the various things around the country that he was there to protect them against Karl Knutsson, who could be expected to bring with him war and destruction, supported by foreign powers such as Poland and the city of Danzig. Christian also most generously offered to accept the Swedish crown and to re-establish the cordial relations between the three Scandinavian kingdoms. Negotiations followed between Christian and the council about what kind of powers he would have if he were to be elected king of Sweden. As the talks dragged on, the Danish fleet drew closer, and on June 22nd, the day before the election was supposed to take place, the Danish warships had reached the Stockholm archipelago. The hand of the council was forced. There was no other viable candidate, and if Christian wasn't elected, he was in an excellent position to just grab the crown by military means anyway. So even though Christian demanded more power and influence than his predecessors had enjoyed, and explicitly nullified the Halmstad agreement that had given the Council of the Realm more or less free range to rule the kingdom, he was elected King of Sweden on Midsummer's Day, June 23, 1457. July 2nd, he was then officially recognized as king at the traditional ceremony at the Stones of Mura outside Uppsala, and the following day he was crowned at Uppsala Cathedral. Against protocol, it wasn't the archbishop who crowned Christian, but rather another, more junior bishop. 
This was a symbolic protest from the archbishop, who didn't like that the new king had managed to wrest so much power from the council. The relations between King Christian and the Swedish archbishop would remain frosty for years, and have consequences we'll deal with throughout this episode. Christian was well aware that Sweden was a tricky country to govern. He'd seen how Eric and Christopher had both tried with mixed success, so he decided to exercise his substantial power deftly. He tried to disarm any opposition camps by doling out commands and governorships to prominent men from all sides, not only from those who'd always supported him, but also members of the archbishop's camp and even several of the archbishop's relatives in the Oxenshana family. To further butter up the archbishop, Christian returned a lot of the land Karl Knutson had confiscated from the church to pay for his war against Denmark. And even though Christian did a lot to roll back decisions and policies from Karl Knutson's reign, and encouraged a view of that rule as illegal and bad in all thinkable ways, he still tried to mollify the exiled Karl Knutson's old allies by giving them good, that is, enriching, jobs. No one had cause to complain about Christian. The most important reason for Christian's generosity was that he was determined to remain king of Sweden, and not only that, he wanted to make sure that he was succeeded by his son. Clearly, the turbulence surrounding the successions of the last two kings showed that some stability wouldn't hurt, and if it could be guaranteed that his own family remained on the throne, so much the better as far as Christian was concerned. So in early 1458, he made the Norwegian and Swedish councils of the realm recognize his son as his heir. The Danish council had already done this way back when the boy was born. So now the succession was secure, with Christian's son lined up to inherit the three crowns when his father died. The boy, who was three years old at the time, was called Hans, but in English he's known as John, so I'll call him that from now on. My apologies to any and all Danish listeners out there. In other words, everything looked fine. The Kalmar Union was restored, and in all three kingdoms, everyone was happy about it, or at least reasonably happy. Smooth sailing ahead, in other words. Or perhaps not. Already the following year, in 1459, a massive spanner was thrown in the works. What happened was that King Christian's uncle, the Count of Holstein, died. Relations between Holstein and Denmark had recovered after Eric of Pomerania had lost his long and costly war over Schleswig, and the Danish crown had, at least seemingly, accepted that Schleswig was ruled by Holstein. But now the ruler of Holstein was dead. Count Adolf didn't have any children, so the succession was unclear. One of the potential heirs was none other than King Christian, the dead count's nephew. Remembering the ruinous war with Denmark, which hadn't been much fun for Holstein either, even though they'd won, the local nobility in Holstein and Schleswig met and elected Christian Count of Holstein and Duke of Schleswig, on condition that the two, Schleswig and Holstein, would never again be divided and always be ruled by the same person. But even though Schleswig-Holstein would be ruled by Christian, they would not become a part of Denmark. So technically, Christian became his own vassal as Duke of Schleswig, and, less eccentric but slightly more problematic, as Count of Holstein, he became the vassal of the Holy Roman Emperor. But Christian didn't mind this new awkward relation to the German Emperor. He was thrilled that he, without lifting a finger, had captured lands that Eric of Pomerania had fought his long, expensive and ultimately futile war to conquer. 
Christian didn't even mind that he had to compensate his brothers and a few other potential heirs with 123,000 guilder. And if you're not up to speed on how much a guilder is worth, here's a little context. For that kind of money, you could have bought 82,000 oxen or more than 6 tons of silver. It was a breathtaking, eye-watering sum, far more than what all three Scandinavian kingdoms brought into the royal coffers in a year. So to pay these compensations, King Christian was forced to borrow large sums of money. His struggle to repay these loans led to a vicious circle of additional loans and increasingly higher taxes. The Danish nobles thought that the inheritance of Schleswig and Holstein was an excellent development, and they were more or less willing to help the king pay for it. But the situation was quite different in Sweden. Back in Erik of Pomerania's day, the Swedes had seen the war over Schleswig as a distraction that drained the treasury of resources they would have liked to spend in Sweden or at least on conquests in the East. And that opinion hadn't changed. So when Christian now started to increase existing taxes and invent new ones in order to pay his relatives for the right to inherit Schleswig and Holstein, the Swedish nobles started to grumble. Under Christopher, Sweden had enjoyed the privilege of a separate budget, and the king hadn't been able to siphon off resources from Sweden to various pet projects in his other kingdoms. But now, they could only watch as Christian took Swedish tax revenue and paid for Schleswig and Holstein. It didn't help that Christian also went looking for treasure that Karl Knutsson may or may not have left behind in Sweden. Money, valuables and even two golden crowns were rounded up and sold in Germany to help the king cover his loan payments. Christian didn't just increase taxes, he came up with a number of other ways to squeeze money from his subjects. Many especially in Sweden, felt this was a provocation. Maybe the king, born a German noble who lived in Denmark, wasn't aware of the relatively strong political position of Swedish farmers, or maybe he didn't care. But whatever the reason, he clearly underestimated the willingness and ability of the Swedish peasantry to revolt when they were pushed too far. An indication of just how far the situation had deteriorated could be seen at the winter market in Uppsala in 1463. A rumor started to make the rounds that the old king, Karl Knutsen, was about to return to reclaim his Swedish crown. The rumor was greeted with enthusiasm, and that caused the archbishop to react. Perhaps even overreact. Some might even say panic. He ordered several burghers of Stockholm to be arrested and tortured on suspicion of colluding with Karl Knutsen. Some other people, even a few nobles, were also arrested, and the archbishop sent a letter to Christian in Denmark imploring the king to send troops to Stockholm to stabilize the situation and to protect Sweden from the possibility of Karl Knutsson's return. Christian clearly took the news seriously, because he responded to the letter by going to Sweden personally. He met the Swedish consul at the Vastena Abbey, where he rolled back the generosity that he'd previously shown to Karl Knutsson's old allies in Sweden. All their commands and governorships were taken from them and given to members of the archbishop's extended family. The king even handed over the castle in Stockholm to the archbishop. He also decided to increase the tax even further in Sweden, this time to pay for the kingdom's defense against a potential invasion by Karl Knutsson. Once that was taken care of, Christian left Sweden again. As the king left, and news of the extra tax that Christian had just introduced started to spread, people got really mad. 
This was the proverbial straw that broke the equally proverbial camel's back. In Uppland, the region surrounding Uppsala, thousands of people gathered and marched on Stockholm to protest against the new tax. The archbishop and a few other brave members of the council tried to meet and reason with the irate peasants, promising more talks and dangling the possibility of a compromise in front of them. They were met with open contempt from the gathered peasants. You may think that that's a natural reaction, but you should take into account that for these people, living their best medieval lives, the archbishop wasn't merely a senior nobleman, but the person in the whole kingdom who was closest to God, and making him upset may annoy God as well. And that was a big deal. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that for these peasants to openly oppose the archbishop was a much more dramatic act of defiance than what we as 21st century people might think. The situation was volatile, and the archbishop sensed that violence could erupt at any moment, and that it would be directed at him as the representative of the crown. So he went on the defensive and issued a proclamation that peasants and burghers would be exempt from the new extra tax. The news was met with great joy among the assembled peasants. On the other hand, the king, who had only made it to Turku across the Baltic Sea in Finland when he heard about what had happened, was less jubilant. He suspected that the archbishop, who'd always had it in for him, had done this on purpose. King Christian was convinced that the cleric had incited the peasants against the king and his new tax, and then further undermined royal authority and boosted his own popularity by abolishing the tax. On August 10th, 1463, King Christian returned to Stockholm and had the insubordinate archbishop arrested. When the news of the arrest reached the peasants in Uppland, they reacted even more violently than they had done when they'd first heard about this new tax. This time, the king's governors and other officials were attacked by peasants, burghers and even some noblemen, and then a well-armed force of peasants once again marched on Stockholm. They almost managed to sneak in by the cover of darkness, but at the last minute they were detected and thanks to church bells sounding the alarm, reinforcements could be sent to the city walls to repel the attack. Instead, the peasant force set up camp in a few locations north of the city, among them on the island just north of the city in Lake Mälaren, where the Swedish parliament is located today. The following day, August 21st, the city defenders sallied out of the northern gate and attacked the peasant camp on the island. Scores of peasants were cut down by the soldiers, no matter if they fought back or if they surrendered. Even the peasants who sought asylum in a nearby church were killed without mercy. Some peasants survived, but they were all arrested and later executed, and their bodies left to rot at the place of their execution. After that show of brute force, the whole rebellion collapsed, and all the participants that could snuck off home again. From his captivity, the rebel leader, also known as the Archbishop of Sweden, could only watch how his attempt to fight the king had failed. At this point, he was grasping at straws and called an interdict over all of Sweden because the king had imprisoned him. But King Christian countered by writing to the Pope, pointing out that he had arrested the Archbishop not in his capacity as a man of God, but as the commander of Stockholm Castle, and as a rebel. He stressed that this was the second time the Archbishop had led a rebellion against a king, even though he didn't mind particularly when the king had been Karl Knutsson. The Pope could see Christian's point, and the interdict never came into effect. 
So things continued as usual in Sweden, except that the archbishop and his brother, who was also a member of the Council of the Realm, both lost their commands of castles. When Christian finally could return home to Denmark in November, he was pretty satisfied with what he had accomplished. His ships were loaded with this year's Swedish taxes, so he could make a large payment on his debts. And he'd also been able to put down a rebellion, and he'd seriously weakened the opposition in the Swedish council, centered around the archbishop and his Oxenshana family. The Swedish archbishop, by the way, had been brought along as a prisoner, and was locked up in the keep of Copenhagen Castle. But even though the Swedish opposition may have been weakened and its leader was held in captivity abroad, there still was an opposition. And the last few months had done nothing to improve the opinion of Christian among the Swedish nobles who opposed him. They still resented his power grab, and now even more so, since he'd shown himself more than willing to use that power. It didn't take long for the Swedish opposition against King Christian to unite and act on all that resentment. Already that very winter, in fact, a new revolt formed under the leadership of the Bishop of Linköping, who just happened to be the cousin of the incarcerated archbishop, so also a member of the Oxenshana family. He was supported by many of the noble families who lived further north and therefore didn't enjoy the benefits of cross-border peace that had made some intertwined Swedish-Danish aristocratic families so rich. The mere rumor that Christian was planning to impose even higher taxes was all it took to get the peasants from several regions to join the rebellion as well. In the beginning of February, the rebellious bishop of Linköping was elected to be the captain of this new rebellion, and he didn't waste any time. Several castles were assaulted and his forces descended on Stockholm and surrounded the city completely. One of the reasons the rebels were in such a haste was that the winter weather was a fact in their favor. Their troops could move quickly on skis and sleds, and Christian couldn't send reinforcements, since the Baltic Sea was difficult to navigate in the winter, and ice covered many passages, especially close to land and in the Stockholm archipelago. But when King Christian heard about this new rebellion, he decided he wasn't going to wait for spring. Instead, he acted quickly and decisively, ordering a counterattack over land that would hit hard against the heartland of the rebel leaders. Already in March, he and an army of more than 2,000 soldiers crossed the land border into Sweden, and more and more knights flocked to his side. Among the noble families in the border region, the rebellion didn't have much support, if any and the noblemen living there were eager to prove to the king that they were loyal, perhaps in an attempt to stave off any and all acts of vengeance once Christian would inevitably crush this rebellion. Already on March 18th, Christian and his army reached Linköping, the seat of the rebellious bishop. The king spent three days living in the bishop's castle and emptying his stores and larders, with the eager help of his soldiers. Then, They continued northward, and four days later, on March 25th, they stood outside the walls of Stockholm. As the Danes approached, the peasant force surrounding the city had lost their cool and abandoned the siege. They'd done so in such a haste that they'd left behind a lot of supplies, weapons and food that now fell into Danish hands. Christian entered Stockholm unopposed, and he spent Easter in the city before continuing in his pursuit of the rebellious bishop and his forces. They 
had spent the holiday in Westeros. But as the Danish army approached, they didn't like their chances in open battle, so they retreated northward towards Dalarna, the region where the legendary rebel leader Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson had come from. The rebels took up a defensive position in the very same forest where Erik Puke, if you remember him, and his peasant force had managed to defeat Karl Knutsson back in 1437. Here, the bishop and his army, consisting mostly of peasants and some nobles from northern and central Sweden, waited for Christian to show up with his army of professional soldiers and mounted knights. The rebels hoped that the barricades they'd erected on the narrow and winding forest roads would prove as effective now as they had almost 30 years ago, not to mention in the last episode, albeit in a different forest. And, as the Danes approached on April 17th, the rebels' hope proved justified. Just like last time, the peasants could stay hidden among the trees and shoot at the knights who were sitting targets strung out in a long line along the road. To make matters worse, the knights couldn't fight back effectively, and so after two hours of being under constant attack, and when King Christian himself reportedly got an arrow shot through his green hat, the Danish troops started to retreat. The attack had been an embarrassing defeat for Christian and his elite army. They had now finally learned the hard way what other well-equipped professional armies had learned before them. Faced with a well-defended opponent with crossbows that could pierce armor, it was almost impossible to win, even against amateur soldiers. The king had to retreat to Stockholm, and eventually a situation developed where the rebels controlled the land and Christian and his army held the city. Neither had any realistic chance of defeating the other militarily, so various nobles were working overtime to find a diplomatic solution. But they never really got anywhere, because the rebels demanded that the archbishop be released as a precondition for talks, and the king saw this as his final prize and not something he was willing to give up so soon in the negotiations. So there was a deadlock. In this situation, the increasingly restless Swedish nobles started to look for a way out, to break the deadlock and to reach a deal with the king. Because even though the 30 or so families that made up the Swedish high nobility were divided into a number of camps, most of them still wanted a deal with the king. They just wanted the king to agree to hand back some of the power he'd taken from the Council of the Realm when he ascended to the Swedish throne. The one thing that united the various camps among the Swedish high nobility was the fear of Karl Knutsson returning. But what were the odds for that? Well, it turns out that in the wake of the deadlock in the non-starting negotiations, a relative of Karl Knutsson was busy agitating among the peasants in Dalarna against King Christian and for the return of Karl Knutsson from his exile in Danzig. He promised that Karl Knutsson was the only one who would be able to evict the evil foreign king and to abolish his unjust taxes. Officially, the demand to return Karl Knutsson first came from the peasants in the Dalarna region, Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson's old stomping grounds, remember? But Karl Knutsson hadn't exactly been known as a friend of peasants in general, and these peasants in particular. They had been a driving force behind the rebellion against Karl Knutsson both in the 1430s and the rebellion in 1457, where he was eventually driven into exile. So, as I mentioned, it's much more likely that the original idea came from their leader, who was related to Karl Knutsson and who spent considerable time and effort propagating for Karl Knutsson and, perhaps more importantly, against King Christian. 
Sure, you don't like Karl Knutsson. Who does? True, he's not very likable. And yeah, you rebelled against him repeatedly in the past, but he's the only one who can get rid of this foreign king. This line of argument also convinced many of the Swedish nobles who wanted to evict Christian from Stockholm. So, many of the same nobles who had led the 1457 rebellion that had driven Karl Knutsson into exile now called upon him to return seven years later. When the call to return reached Karl Knutsson in Danzig in the summer, he didn't waste any time mulling over the weirdness of his old enemies wanting him back. He immediately started to pack and prepare for his return to Sweden. He also raised troops and bought a few ships. On August 9th, Karl Knutsson and his fleet arrived at the Stockholm archipelago, and there he was met by the people who had recalled him, some of whom were his former opponents. A week later, Stockholm flung open its gate to him. The archbishop, the city burghers and the peasants who had organized the siege of the city greeted Karl Knutsson and hailed him as king of Sweden. The wheel of fortune had turned quickly for Karl Knutsson, and he was back in Stockholm as king without having had to fight for it. But just because the Danes hadn't opposed him so far, that didn't mean that the Danish threat had been eliminated. Danish troops still held Stockholm Castle, and they sat holed up there watching the goings-on from behind the garrison walls. So far, they hadn't tried to stop Karl Knutsson's return, but they hadn't given up either. After he'd taken over Stockholm and been proclaimed king once again, Karl Knutsson made a deal with the Danes, where they promised to give up and turn over the castle to him. Somewhat surprisingly, that deal did not include any demand to release the Swedish archbishop, who was still held prisoner in Copenhagen. Karl Knutsson was probably happy to have his old opponent, the Oxenstierna archbishop, locked up in Denmark. But the deal was unpopular, both among Danes and Swedes. At the last moment, opponents to the deal within the castle took over control and refused to hand it over to Karl Knutsson. At the same time, representatives from the Swedish aristocracy, who were among Karl Knutsson's old enemies, went to Denmark and negotiated the release of the archbishop. The newly released cleric returned to Uppsala in November, and he was not happy that Karl Knutsson had done nothing to secure his release. All of a sudden, things didn't look all that rosy for Karl Knutsson anymore. He held Stockholm, true, but the wider country beyond the city walls were controlled by his opponents in the Oxenstierna camp. It's true that Karl Knutsson still had allies in Sweden, but their heartland was further away, not in the Stockholm area. To make matters worse, the Danes who still held the castle had turned their cannon on the city and were now firing at random to terrorize the population and dampen their enthusiasm for the king who had returned from exile. It's not entirely clear to me how they thought this indiscriminate firing would make the locals more inclined to accept Danish rule, though, but, you know, whatever. To get out of the stalemate, Karl Knutsen attacked the archbishop in mid-December, but the attack was pushed back. To make matters worse, the archbishop's forces soon went on the offensive, and by early January 1465, they had initiated a siege of Stockholm. Karl Knutsson's forces tried to break the siege by sallying out of the city from time to time. When they did, fierce fighting would ensue outside the city walls, and even on the ice of the frozen lake surrounding the city. But they weren't able to break the siege. Karl Knutsson remained surrounded by enemies, Danes in the castle and the archbishop's forces outside the city walls. When he got the news that a peasant force he'd sent for, hoping they'd be able to attack the besiegers from the back, had turned around and gone home again, 
Karl Knudsen realized the jig was up. So in January 30th, 1465, less than six months after his triumphant return from exile, Karl Knudsen participated in a ceremony at Stockholm City Hall where he officially abdicated and renounced all claims to the Swedish crown. In exchange, he was granted land and money, so his brief second go on the throne hadn't been a complete waste of time as far as he was concerned. The big winners, though, were the members of the Oxenstierna camp, led by the archbishop. Their situation was now much stronger, and they hoped to be able to twist King Christian's arm so that he'd accept concessions and would prove willing to give up powers to the Swedish council in exchange for the Swedish crown. But nothing is ever as easy as you think or hope it'll be. Christian didn't show any particular eagerness to accept the archbishop's demands. The Swedish peasants also started to grumble when they realized that Karl Knudsen was once again out and that Christian was on the way back in. This was all a little much as far as they were concerned. Over the last year or so, they'd been fed propaganda about Karl Knudsen's virtues and Christian's wickedness, and now they were supposed to flip? They weren't buying it. The archbishop realized he had to tread carefully and play the long game. Patience was required. So an uneasy peace reigned. It was calm at the moment, but everyone knew it was just the quiet before the storm. Tune in next time to find out what happened next. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life, Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>